Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I understand you have uh, a pretty interesting court case that uh, you've very recently been working on. Well, we have several very interesting court cases, Brian, and one of them involves the issue of separation of church and state, which, if we properly understand it, meaning that the church cannot dictate to the state, but likewise the state cannot dictate to the church, it's a proper concept. And we are taking this issue up to the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of a Louisiana pastor who had several misdemeanors dismissed eventually, but several misdemeanors for continuing to hold church services. Well, the governor had issued an order that effectively prevented them. And we'll be taking that up to the Supreme Court on a theory that I think is perfectly consistent with the scriptural understanding, the historical understanding, and with the understanding of our founding fathers that church and state are separate institutions It's not quite like free exercise of religion. Free exercise involves individuals, although those individuals might exercise their rights individually or they might exercise them collectively in a church body. But on the other hand, the Establishment Clause may involve individuals as well, but primarily the Establishment Clause is dealing with the church as an institution, an institution established by God that is equal in authority to the state and god established both kingdoms church and state for distinctive reasons and neither is to dictate to the other but i'm going to develop that a little more in a week or so because right now i am working on a brief to the supreme court on that issue and i'll be better prepared to discuss that shortly instead i'll talk about a case that took place over in Selma, Alabama. Selma, Alabama, back on Halloween, October 31st of last fall. And Selma, of course, has a very unique and difficult history. We had the Civil Rights March from Selma to Montgomery, and we had quite a few civil rights violations that took place in Selma back in the 1950s and 60s. Selma is a very different place today. It is majority black and it is run in a very different way. But we had a case on Halloween last year involving a street preacher who was arrested for preaching on a street. And it's an interesting case. He was from South Georgia, and he had come to do some street street preaching in Selma because they were having their annual Halloween parade that they call the Monster March, and kids in costumes and so on. But anyway, he was going to preach to this crowd as they were marching by. And he was arrested and taken to jail, although he was released. And we finally went to court on this case yesterday. Now, here's what the complaint says. The complaint says that 
the defendant did cause a public disturbance by blasting his voice over several speakers as parent, uh, parents and children as they participated in the city of Selma's annual monster march. The individual placed his speakers within inches of said participants as they crossed over to the southwest side of the sidewalk located at the intersection of Dallas Avenue and Broad Street. Mr. Castor was then asked by Sergeant Hale, did he have a permit from City Hall for his speakers? And he advised, no, he did not, nor, nor did he need one. He was then informed that if he did not stop his actions, he would be placed under arrest. He then continued to do so and was taken into custody and transported to police headquarters. Now, if that is exactly what had happened, I would say we would still have a free speech and free exercise of religion violation. But it is not exactly what happened. In fact, we have two videos of the entire incident. One, that he had recorded the entire incident from the very beginning as he is setting up. And the other recorded by his sister, who is there with him. She's from Selma. And she was there with him as the incident was taking place. Both of them show that this is not the case at all. He came with speakers. Speakers were set up. And they were way across the street from where the participants in the, march, the monster march were. In the course of the march, some of them started marching in his direction, and they marched closely by one of the speakers, but not in any way that would be causing them to trip or anything like this. But they were not anywhere close to the crowd when he set up the speakers. Listen to what he said to people who were with him at the time as he began to set up, telling them we are not here to cause trouble. We are going to be respectful. We are going to recognize these people have a right to have the monster march. We're just going to tell them about the love of God. And that's exactly what he said he was going to do. That's exactly what he did. And as he is preaching, the crowd mostly, as they're marching by him, they really don't even look his way, most of them. A few of them occasionally do. One or two of them would say, preach it, brother, or something like that, encouraging to him. And then a police car pulls up, and a, a policeman gets up and gets out. And this is not a racial issue. The pastor here is black. The arresting officers are black. The prosecutor is black. The judge is black. So there's no racial issue involved here at all. But anyway, the officer approaches the preacher and said, you have a permit. And he said, as they say here, no, I don't. I don't need one. And it was his belief, and he is correct on this, that the First Amendment gives him all the permission that he needs in order to preach in this way. Anyway, so the officer says that he's going to have to stop preaching because with those speakers that he is disrupting things. If you will listen to the videos that we have, and we have two of them, they indicate that, yes, he is talking loud enough to be heard, but he's not shouting, screaming, or getting in people's faces or anything. And, but anyway, so he said, well, if the problem is the speakers, can I preach without the speakers? So he sets down his microphone and resumes preaching. They ask him, they tell him, then, no, you got to stop. His sister then asked the officer, well, could he go to another corner and preach? And they said, no, he's got to stop. 
And when he said, well, I'm called on to preach and I have a right to preach and he continues to preach, all throughout this, he is addressing the officers as sir and being respectful to them, but they handcuff him and they put him in the police car, take him off to the police station where he is booked and charged and then released. They didn't keep him in jail. Anyway, that took place on Halloween. And when we were first told of the case, we wanted to find out the details, of course. So we talked to him. We talked to his sister. We viewed the videos, two of them, one of them showing from a wider angle, another one much more up close where you hear not only what he is saying, but you hear his interaction with the officers. And we prepared a motion to dismiss. The motion to dismiss argued, number one, that this is a free speech violation, that he has a right to, to speak in this way, that since his speech is religious, that it is also a free exercise of religion violation. Both of these, of course, are protected by God, but as God gives these protections, we have codified them in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Being there as the First Amendment means that this is the first and foremost of all of our God-given civil liberties. So we go on to say that if there is a requirement that he get a permit in advance, and it's not clear from the law whether this is required or not, and in any event, he was not charged with not getting a permit. But if that, that is the case, then that's what we call prior restraint. That is not allowing a person to speak unless he gets prior approval in advance. And the law it very much disfavors prior restraint. It's allowed only in very extreme circumstances. We argued furthermore that the statute, as you're applying it, is vague. When it talks about offensive speech, for example, or loud noise, well, when it talks about speech and uses categories of offensive or obscene, then it goes on to say loud noise. I have to say that when speech is defined as it's covered here only if it's offensive or obscene, noise then must be something other than speech. And there is no noise at all here other than the speaking, and the speaking is not obscene as to whether it is offensive. That is going to depend entirely on the hearer, yes, there might be a few people who would be offended at gospel preaching, but there would be others who would be strongly in approval, and that's going to be many more if we're talking about a Bible Belt city like Selma, Alabama. And at any rate, just saying offensive speech, we're arguing that that is void for vagueness. What I mean by void for vagueness, we have plenty of case law that says statutes especially statutes that prohibit certain conduct with criminal penalties, those statutes have to be reasonably clear so the person knows what he can and can't do. For example, Ryan, let's just suppose we adopted a statute. The statute said, no one shall do anything wrong, and anyone who does anything wrong will be punished with 30 days in jail. Does that give you a fair warning as to what you can and can't do? Clearly not. A statute has to identify the criminal conduct with 
sufficient clarity that the average reasonable person knows pretty well what he can and cannot do. Obviously, there's going to be a few instances where there might be a little ambiguity, but it should be as clear as it can. Just saying that offensive speech is prohibited is not enough. Because what is offensive? What you think is offensive, somebody else might think is very acceptable. What somebody else thinks is offensive is something you might approve of entirely. Likewise, talking about loud noise. What is loud? Again, that's going to be a matter of definition and just listening to the videos here, I would have to say that while he is talking loud enough to be heard, he's not shouting, screaming, frothing of the mouth, getting in people's face, anything like this. So again, if we're going to just say this is offensive or loud, the statute is void for vagueness. Well, we made all of these arguments. We cited the Shuttlesworth case, Shuttlesworth versus Birmingham from back in the civil rights era, case of a black preacher who was arrested with several others for a demonstration in Birmingham. And the court, Supreme Court of the United States in that case not only struck down the conviction, but they said that not only does he have a right to demonstrate as he was doing and to preach as he was doing, but also if police officers give him an illegal order saying you have to stop preaching, he has a right to disregard that order. Anyway, so we thought we were in a pretty good position to go to trial. And we came to trial yesterday afternoon, and we are sitting there waiting for the court to convene so we'll start at one and anyway the prosecutor comes and he asked to see his, the attorneys back in the room with the judge there and you need to understand something about prosecutors here that they are very busy i've been a prosecutor i know how that is that sometimes you're going to be given a stack of files first thing in the morning a stack of files you've never seen before and say john you got to handle the cases in municipal court today. And you pick these up, you look at each one and file through them and be kind of looking at the next one as you're handling one and so on. Most of them would just be very simple motions or pleas or a few things like that. But sometimes the substantive issue develops. But I mentioned it as a background, not to be critical of the prosecutor here. He has a busy case load here, but he said that he had not had time to read our motion to dismiss. And also, he had not viewed the videos, but he said he understood we were moving to dismiss, and he wondered if we could tell him why. So we explained briefly what it was all about. And he simply said, well, you know, here in Selma, this is Bible Belt country, and we don't want to be perceived as coming down hard on preaching. And so I'm going to move to dismiss this. I'd rather you let me as the prosecutor move to dismiss rather than you dismiss, but I would like to have the police officer, I'd like to talk to him briefly about it. So he talked to the officer for a couple of minutes out of our presence, called attorneys back in, and in just a few seconds, he said, okay, we got all this set up. The officer is going to make a statement as to what happened. And then the court is going to dismiss this case against your client. So we come back before the judge, and the officer makes his statement, and 
I'm not going to say the officer was lying. He probably perceived it differently from the way we perceived it. But like I say, we have the videos that clearly show what you were saying. But the officer said, I have no objection to dismissing the charge here. I would just like to tell the preacher here that if he comes to Solomon to preach again, he just needs to be respectful of the rights of other people. He has a First Amendment right to preach, but you got to respect other people's rights as well. Well, Ricky, I think, wanted to respond to that, but I told Ricky, look, you won. It's better to keep quiet right now. And anyway, so he just thanked the court. The court dismissed the charge, and we came out with what we consider to be a victory. However, there was a similar case up in Prattville. We weren't involved in this one, but in Prattville, that's very close to Montgomery. It was a very similar case, very similar statute, and similar actions. The preacher in this case was told that they would dismiss the charge against him if he would agree to seek a permit the next any other time he came to Prattville to preach and was using a microphone. He agreed to that. We had asked our client the night before, you might possibly be asked the same thing. Would you agree to get a permit if, if they dismiss the charge? And he said, no, I would not. I believe that I have a right to preach, and I don't believe that I need a permit for preaching. Okay, it's good to know that. But anyway, he was they never they never raised that issue. If they had raised the issue about the permit, we have simply responded, look, Your Honor, we don't know whether the permit is required here or not, but at any rate, he is not charged with failure to get a permit. Anyway, we consider this a victory. However, the case, similar cases are going to come up here and there, and in a sense, this comes out of the civil rights issue of the 1950s and 60s. The statute that is being used here is one that would have been used against black civil rights advocates 50, 60 years ago, and now it's being used against Christian preachers today. Some of those were Christian preachers in those days as well. point of all of this is simply that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We have won this case, but... This is not the last time this issue is going to come up. Well, I'd like to go on to talk about something else here that I think is very important for us to understand. The Vietnam War took place back in the 1960s and early 70s. A lot of our listeners would not even have been born at that time or old enough to be listening to and understanding the, the news. I was a teenager when the Vietnam War began, and in my 20s when it finished. And of course, I was following it very closely at the time. First war that I remember, in fact, you'll kind of regard this maybe as rather humorous, but I was conceived during World War II and born a few months after World War II, after it ended in 1945, meaning I'm 77 today. But... I do recall radio broadcasts about the Korean War in the early 1950s, but you'll find this humorous. One of my earliest memories of the Korean War, a broadcast on the radio talking about a village and saying that an army of guerrillas was closing in on the village. Well, I didn't know anything about guerrilla warfare in those days, but I knew what guerrillas were, or at least I thought I did. And the picture that I had is an army of big gorillas closing in on this city, and that was kind of scary. But 
anyway, of course, by the time of Vietnam, by this time, I was well aware of what communism was, what the communist threat was, and I was very, very concerned about it. I was a strong supporter of the Vietnam War, and I still believe that there was a good reason for that war. It was not simply a civil war in Vietnam, rather it was aggression by the North Vietnamese with their Russian and Chinese allies against the legitimately constituted government of South Vietnam. We were obligated, I believe, by the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization agreements to come to the aid of South Vietnam. The CETO agreement, like the NATO agreements, provided that an attack upon any of the nations that were part of this agreement would be considered an attack upon all of these nations, and that it was the obligation of all governments who were part of the CETO agreement then to come to the aid of the nation that was attacked. We did so, although the aid that we gave was, in my opinion, half-hearted. We followed a policy of the Johnson administration, what they called gradual escalation. That is, we would gradually step up our efforts, our troop commitments and so on in support of South Vietnam, which doing it gradually gave the enemy the opportunity to gradually escalate as well. The Schwarzkopf Doctrine and the Gulf War of massive retaliation, I think, is far more appropriate. And it's like MacArthur said, in war, there is no substitute for victory, and there is no excuse for defeat. But 50 years ago, on March 29th of 1973, the last American soldiers left Vietnam. 53,000 or 56,000, I'm sorry, were left behind dead. Others are missing in action. And many today have no idea why the conflict took place. Many don't really believe that we had a reason for being there. I think we clearly did. Many simply think that this was a big waste. I think we accomplished something there. And I think what we accomplished was very important. And those who fought, those who died in Vietnam, did not die in vain. What they did is they bought the free world a decade of time against the communist advance. The communist advance that had been carefully articulated by the communist leaders themselves, that they would take Eastern Europe, and then they would take Southeast Asia, and then they would gradually encircle the United States, which would be the last bastion of capitalism. And that's exactly the strategy that they were following. What we did in Vietnam, we held back that advance for a decade. We bought the free world a decade of time. And the resources that the Soviet Union poured into that war strained the Soviet economy to the point that they could simply no longer compete. I believe there is a direct relationship between the stand we took in Vietnam and the collapse of the Soviet Union a decade later, more after the break. <laughs> and we are
are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I, I'll admit there's a lot of dates that slip by, but uh, now I've got it on my calendar. Vietnam Veterans Day, March 29th, and uh, kind of a big anniversary this year with the uh, last U.S. soldier coming out of out of that war. Um, I'm friends with a, with a former Air Force colonel who uh, at one time said, you know, if you use the term the Southeast, the war in Southeast Asia, he was telling me that that may also be a very accurate way to refer to that that conflict, since not all of it apparently took place in Vietnam. No, it certainly did not. It took place in Laos, took place in Cambodia, and then there was action going on in Thailand as well. So, yes, it was it was Southeast Asia. And of course, to, like you say, to call it the war in Southeast Asia is really much more accurate because it wasn't just about Vietnam. It was about these other countries that would be falling as dominoes of South Vietnam fell. And anyway, of course, they did fall. We had the Paris peace talks. And anyway, the North Vietnamese came to the table almost immediately when President Nixon started the bombing over North Vietnam. Our prisoners of war there who were in North Vietnam would hear the bombers overhead and they would cheer as they would hear those bombers coming, even though they knew that they could possibly be the recipient of one of those bombs themselves. That happens in war sometimes. But anyway, so the North Vietnamese and their allies came to the peace table then after we became aggressive and they agreed to a peace. The problem with the peace agreement though is it had terms in it that I think anybody at the time, I personally at the time thought this is never gonna last. One of the terms of the peace agreement was that North Vietnam could keep its military units in South Vietnam. Who can't see that that is going to result in future conflict and eventual takeover? And yes, just a year or so later, after 1973, a new offensive is launched. At this time, Nixon is out of office. The American public is just simply weary of the whole thing, and they're not willing to approve further aid for South Vietnam. South Vietnamese soldiers are fighting with U.S. weapons, but no U.S. ammunition to use in them. And as a result, South Vietnam fell. We had a massive airlift out of South Vietnam. I will give President Ford and our government at that time credit. It was a much more orderly airlift and evacuation than took place in Afghanistan a couple of years ago. But at any rate, because we didn't have the commitment to stand by our promises, we promised that if further aggression took place, that we would come to the aid of South Vietnam, but we violated that promise. The public just didn't have the stomach to do it. And as a result, South Vietnam fell. But we honor those who served. And yesterday we had a ceremony in the Vietnam Memorial Ceremony, or a section of the Greenwood Cemetery here in Montgomery. And I understand there were similar ceremonies throughout the nation. I know there was one big one in Spokane. But anyway, part of our ceremony, where I served as MC, 
let me disclose one thing else. I'm talking about this too, that all during my college years, as the Vietnam War was beginning while I was in college, 63 to 67, the opposition to Vietnam was forming. And some of those who opposed the war were simple patriotic Americans who just believed that this war was not right, not a good idea that we be there. Some of them, though, I think were anti-American, hated America, and would have welcomed a communist victory over the United States. There were both of these. But I was active there at St. Olaf College in my junior and senior year. I was in ROTC at the time, and I was active in conservative politics and speaking and debating, lecturing on behalf of the Vietnam War. After I graduated, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force and deferred to go to law school, thinking that then I could serve as a judge advocate, as a captain, second lieutenant, only expecting that I would be sent over to Vietnam at the time, continued with even more fierce conflict over the Vietnam War in my three years at the University of Iowa. There at law school, the radicals of Students for a Democratic Society and others were much more organized, much more fierce, much more violent than they were at St. Olaf College. And so the struggle became more intense then. But upon graduation, I was prepared to go on active duty. But when I reported for active duty in 71, I was told at that time that we were winding down the war, that I most likely would not be sent to Vietnam, that they just weren't sending judge advocates or lawyers over there. We just didn't need many anymore. We had more than we needed. And that all of my service would probably be in the United States. It always bothered me since that time that I was never sent over there. I was ready to go, willing to go. But when I joined Vietnam Veterans of America, I told them, I'm not really sure I should call myself a Vietnam veteran. I wasn't there. I was in the military at the time, but I wasn't there. And the response they gave me was, we couldn't have done our job over there if you hadn't done your job back here. And the interesting thing is, too, when you look to those who were sent to Vietnam, about one out of seven actually participated in combat. Others were in personnel, in finance, JAG, chaplain, medic, many other capacities like this. And if I had been sent to Vietnam, I probably would have been doing pretty much the same judge advocate work there that I was doing at Offutt Air Force Base in the United States. So I've come to terms with that. And I'm glad that I had the opportunity to serve, even though I wasn't there. But one of the things that we do in honor of those who served as we do the folding of the flag ceremony. And we explain the meaning of the folding of the flag. The first fold is a symbol of life. The second fold symbolizes our belief in eternal life. The third fold is made in honor and tribute of the veteran departing our ranks and who gave a portion of his or her life for the defense of our country to attain peace. The fourth fold exemplifies our weaker nature as citizens trusting in God. It is to him we turn for his divine guidance. The fifth fold, and as we do this ceremony, of course, they're watching me and at each fold. I'm watching them to go to each point. The fifth fold is an acknowledgement of our country. 
For in the words of Stephen Decatur, our country, in dealing with other countries, may she always be right, but it is still our country, right or wrong. The sixth fold is for where our hearts lie. It is with our heart that we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. The seventh fold is a tribute to our armed forces, for it is through the armed forces that we protect our country and our flag against all enemies. The eighth fold is a tribute to the one who entered into the valley of the shadow of death, that we might see the light of day. The ninth fold is an honor of womanhood, for it has been through their love, faith, loyalty, and devotion that the character of the men and women who have made this country great have been molded. The tenth fold is a tribute to the father, for he too has given his sons and daughters for the defense of our country. The eleventh fold in the eyes of Hebrew citizens represents the lower portion of the seal of King David and King Solomon and glorifies in their eyes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The twelfth fold in the eyes of the Christian citizen represents an emblem of eternity and glorifies in their eyes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. The last fold, when the flag is completely folded, the stars are uppermost, reminding us of our national motto, In God We Trust. I'd like to read something that I read there. I have first seen this. How much time do I have? Uh, you've still got uh, quite a bit of time, at least uh, at least another How 12 much? minutes. I'm going to need every bit of it. Let me, let me go over time if necessary, and you can cut some of the flag. This is something that I read way back in 1969 in the Reader's Digest. It moved me to tears at that time. I saved it in my scrapbook, and I was thinking about what to say at this ceremony. I thought back on this, and I found it in my scrapbook. It is by Al Doolin. It is titled, To Our Fallen Son. This, my son, is how it was and is. It was Friday, 5.15 p.m. Cloudy and still hot as I turned into our drive, continued on into the garage. I was standing over the littered workbench, debating which chore deserved first claim. When someone called my name, in the doorway I saw a preacher. As I went to meet him, your mother came hurrying toward me from the house. Nothing about her looked right. There was the impression of calamitous change, entire and final. The minister reached for my arm, then Jean took my hand, and I felt her trembling. My impulse was to shout her, to demand that she restore the smile that she had been wearing only an hour before. I asked, what has happened? She answered, Mike has been killed. How can I tell you how much like death life was at that instant? I pictured you as clearly as I've ever seen you in all the ways I've ever seen you, as a fat baby drooling on my shoulder, as a little eager straining to throw down to second base, as a rugged softy sobbing at the sight of a starved dog, as the fiery captain of those good football teams. I saw you grown, a man blooming with pride in the Marine Corps, so strong and tough and openly sentimental. And I thought, you, Mike, shot down in battle? Preposterous, a lie. That you could die at all was unthinkable. That you could have lain dead for days without our having known it or sensed it was not possible. But there was Jean, wavering before me as the wreckage a woman is when she has lost her only child. 
and I could lay hold of nothing to fend off belief. The agony was utter, crippling. I was unable to speak to your mother or take her in my arms. For a moment, I saw you without life, cold and still, and out of my guts sprang an awful rancor against God. I wanted to sum him down to be battered with this rage and pain to force him to account. It's Mike, Jean said. They do mean Mike, and he is dead. We went into the house. Lynn was waiting. Earlier, she had been talking about your first wedding anniversary just three days away. A week ago, she had sent you a piece of your wedding cake, saved in the freezer as a surprise, and she had been much concerned that the males might mash it. Now she stood wide-eyed and lost. Beside her were two Marines. They met me with quiet expressions of regret and the gentle warning that there was no mistake, that we should not cling to hope. Time passed before I could react enough to gather our women, yours and mine. I held them like a pair of broken dolls. Soon people came flooding to the house. Dishes of food and flowers appeared. It had begun. The terrible two weeks of wet pillows, of escapes to the closet for private grief, of alternate collapse and recomposure while we awaited the return of your body from Da Nang. It is difficult to tell you about those weeks, even to separate one day from another. Your mother dwindled by 15 pounds. She hardly slept, but would lie staring at the darkness, remembering the mother things, taking careful inventory of the treasures she had been storing in her heart since the morning you were born. Through the days, Lynn made herself the angel of our consolation. Nights, she lay crying in her bed. Sometimes exhaustion stunned me into periods of stupor rest, and they were hateful. For at each awakening, you struck me afresh, as if with every sunrise you died again right before my eyes. Still, because Lynn and I and your mother agreed, I got myself together amid all this to write your eulogy. Remember the talk we had the day before you shipped out? I expect to be back, you told me. But if I should buy the farm, I want to be buried as a Marine. Make it short and simple, you said, and in my dress blues. This was how we did it. You had Marines like gleaming statues as an honor guard. Marines as pallbearers. There was a rifle volley and taps at the cemetery. You would have been proud of your women. Your mother controlled her head high, limb, wearing the dress you liked best and looking indescribably beautiful, with mute tears streaking her cheeks as she accepted the memorial flag off your coffin. Much later, the details came to us. Your 70 Marines and 6105 stood vulnerable and isolated in a sea of elephant grass on a hill near the Laotian border. The attack came after midnight and it was massive. Besides the mortar fire and hail of grenades, a battle of enemy infantry penetrated the position, creating havoc and confusion. You were in the command tent, armed only with a forty-five. You dashed down slope under fire, rallying the men as you went, wringing organization out of chaos. With five others, you jumped directly into the enemy and fought it out in darkness, hand-to-hand -hand among the guns, through a desperate half-hour. It was a burst from a Russian AK-47 automatic rifle that cut you down. They tell us your death was instant. Four of your party died with you. The fifth fell severely wounded.
but you had won. Thereafter, the crews he rallied brought the 105s into action, gathering off point blank more than 200 beehive rounds. A probable massacre was changed into an astounding triumph. You would like knowing that the battery has received special commendation, that its men declare you saved their lives, that they requested and held a special memorial service for you, that they nominated you for your decoration. How splendid of you, my son, to have given yourself as you did, to have willed this boundless piece of gallantry as your estate. We pour over this final report card with vaulting pride, but it does not surprise us. Bravery was like you from the time you took on the neighborhood bully, on through the bruises of a hundred football games, into those later years when you stood in firm allegiance to standards abandoned to ridicule by others of your generation. Thinking of you and your clear sense of honor and self-respect, I am compelled to the question that has twisted inside me like a dagger since the moment I knew you were gone. Did not we, your parents, point you toward this death? Didn't we, out of our own unqualified love of country and rigid definition of duty, actually rear you to die at war? Perhaps we did. From the first, we taught you reverence for America's flag, her laws, traditions, and institutions. We trained you to the habit of everyday joy in your citizenship. We encouraged your development to an aggressive competitor for excellence in a free society. We saw to it that you would regard the defense of your homeland and support of her commitments as a privilege. We deliberately cultured in you the presently unfashionable belief that a man is responsible for himself, the fabricator of his own consequences. You listened well. You accepted yourself as what you had to work with, granted yourself no excuse, adjusted your life to its seasons. You decided that the student's role was one of learning, not once misconstruing it as a franchise for the destruction of order or the dismantling of authority. It was natural then that you should have regarded Vietnam as not debatable. That your country had pledged itself was sufficient. There was never a doubt that you would volunteer. Many of your contemporaries must have thought you a hopeless non-swinger, a well-groomed heir to their arch-rival establishment, while well, we applauded you. But on that terrible Friday, with the cost of our handcrafted patriotism there before us in the cemetery, we had to ask ourselves whether we had meant what we preached, whether we would continue meaning it through the years ahead. If granted a second chance, would we repeat the course? Or would we find ways to permit and justify, to retract and consent, knowing that the resultant irresponsibility might save your life? To answer, we looked about us at others of your age. We considered the man at the end of our town who ducked into teaching marriage and parenthood as part of an announced strategy for frustrating the draft. We regarded those fleeing to Canada or burning their draft cards under the rationale of a love of cultism. We took into account the pot and LSD sets, the peaceniks and raceniks and mobniks. We regarded the infragrant yippie packs, cotterwalling that America is 200 years mistaken. We considered the whole miscellany of non-people people whose sole product is division, whose sole achievement is the treasonable encouragement of the enemy that killed you, and we became too sick to go on.
No, my son, we could not have given you an exempted conscience, could never have consigned you to the company of these. We prefer this tearful sorting out of your things, this sorrowful laying away of our hopes, these broken-hearted pilgrimages to your grave. We would do it again. Yet even in your transcendence, you are owed a score of apologies. We hate it that your sacrifice goes little notice and unpraised by a press which chooses instead to euphemize treason as the peace movement, mass criminality as demonstration, and exhibitionistic anarchy as protest and dissent. We apologize for abiding the kick-seeking new left with its spewing seditions, for tolerating government that woos the insurrectionist, for the souring churches, for the disemboweling of our national heritage. Yes, I beg your forgiveness for everything that enfeebled America during your brief days of manhood and your instant of dying. Along with these apologies, I confess there is anger. You have purchased me the right to it. It sends me bellowing out of my place in the obedient, silent citizenry where blames are conveniently dumped and into a new radicalism of my own. I think I have become dangerous. They shall not mutilate the flag in my sight. They shall not sing their Ho Chi Minh chants in my hearing. They shall not mock your widow. I'll allow no one to slander or belittle or even forget you. I give you these promises that you must already have known I would make, and I swear to them. There remains then just this. How, my son, do I say farewell? The willow, the one you joked of as our family tree, that gay day we made such a ceremony of planting it, withered and dropped its leaves the week after you died, as if June were autumn. But the chrysanthemums which were sent us in the memorial are doing well out under the North Eve where we put them, and it appears they are near to blooming again. We wear our gold stars for you, and we have hung your sword on the wall. We are keeping afresh the good memories, and more often now, as we speak of you, it is with joy. The three of us who loved you and buried you, thank you eternally. America has had no better than you, and you were ours. Goodbye, Mike. Goodbye. I will add that posthumously, Lieutenant Doolin was awarded the Silver Star. I pray that every March 29th will remember those who fought, those who served, and especially those who died in a battle for freedom there in Vietnam, in those distant jungles, issues of global importance and of eternal significance were being fought. And I thank those who are willing to make that sacrifice. So a couple of days late, a blessed Vietnam Veterans War Memorial Day. Wow. What what a poignant letter. I feel like we ought to put a, a warning at the beginning of this episode. Please, you know, have a box of tissue <laughs> at hand because that uh, that's one that's likely to, to touch some hearts. I certainly hope and pray that it does. Is it likely that, that we are to, to see um, a similar 
you know, conflict for, for upcoming generations? Were there lessons learned that would, would prevent us from from going into similar situations? We only have about a minute, but I'd, I'd love to get your take of, you know, where, where do so we go from we here? We learn from history, but we learn nothing from history. And if we fail to learn from history, we repeat it. And yes, we saw the debacle of Afghanistan, and Putin watched that and took that as a signal to move into Ukraine. The Chinese watching Ukraine are watching that as a signal to move in Taiwan. The North Koreans are watching as well. Yes, the battle for freedom is far from over, and I pray that future generations will be willing to stand firm. <laughs>